I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, the West had an historic opportunity to form a close and friendly relationship with Russia. As Russian tanks roll into Ukraine, the question becomes, what went wrong? To discuss the history behind the current emergency, I'm joined by the Russia expert Mark Galetti. The first section of our interview was recorded after the full Russian invasion of Ukraine, whilst the latter section was recorded on Tuesday the 22nd of February, just after President Putin's recognising of the so-called independent states within eastern Ukraine. I started our discussion by asking how long Ukraine could hold out against the Russian invasion. It's still very early days and we're only getting very partial information. I mean, it seems that the Russian conventional forces are cutting through the Ukrainians, which is pretty much what was expected because the Russians have such an advantage in air power and long range firepower. But the point is that was never going to be what the, the battle was really about. It's about taking the cities and it's about holding the country. And maybe I'm being naively optimistic, but I think actually the Ukrainians have shown every sign that they are willing to absolutely fight. And if that means a guerrilla war for months or God help us all years to come, then then so be it. So I think this is it. It's sort of the the initial invasion is in some ways the easy bit for the Russians. It's what follows, as in other wars like Afghanistan, that is actually going to be what breaks them. So could this be Putin's greatest gamble gone wrong? I think it will be. I think it will be because look, there's no way of getting around the fact that there is no conceivable government he can put in place in Kiev that can rule except on the basis of Russian military power. He will need to maintain a constant occupation force there, which will be tremendously expensive in terms of money, but also in terms of lives. He's now going to face, obviously, the, the pressure of financial sanctions of a whole range coming from the West. He will also, though, have to face the fact that the Russian population themselves are going to be dissatisfied. This is not a war they want, and they certainly are going to be very unhappy as more and more boys come home in metal boxes. And so I think in that situation, he will have to rely more and more on policing. And in some ways, I think Putin's Russia is going to begin to look a lot like the 1970s Soviet Union. A stagnant economy, a disgruntled population kept in, in line by a police state and an increasingly aging leadership that has no new ideas. 
And that, after all, ultimately collapsed. So it's not going to be necessarily a quick process. Um, but I do think that, in fact, if this is meant to be Putin's great bid to, to get into the history books, it will guarantee that he's in the history books for all the wrong reasons. There's two questions on this initial invasion. And um, again, we don't know what's going to happen. Of course, this is extremely early days. But obviously, people are concerned that this invasion could expand, could lead to a sort of a greater war in Europe or even around the world. Do you think there's any danger of that happening? Look, there's always a danger of unplanned escalation. I mean, I certainly don't think that Putin has any such plans. Quite the opposite. I think in some ways, one of the reasons for his move into Ukraine was precisely to prevent Ukraine joining NATO. And that reflects an awareness that once a country is in NATO, frankly, it's it's pretty bulletproof. I can't see, again, this is perhaps allowing too much uh, realism on Putin's side. But nonetheless, I, I really can't see any signs that he'd actually seriously move beyond that. However, we have to appreciate that there are all going to be risks. For example, if there is a partisan war against the Russians in Ukraine, presumably we in the West will be helping supply and arm them and care for them and so forth. It's not inconceivable that then the Russians would decide to send their intelligence operatives to bomb arms depots, because after all, that's exactly what they did back in 2014 in the Czech Republic at a place called Vrbjetica. And then what happens when there's an explosion at an arms depot and, and people die and so forth? So there, there is always going to be a certain risk of kind of direct escalation or this kind of low level conflict emerging. And this is just part of the reasons why this is just such an extraordinarily dangerous gamble on Putin's part. Without actually putting boots on the ground, was there anything the West could have done to prevent this invasion? Was Putin set on this from the outgo and he understood that, for example, sanctions would have limited effect or he didn't care about what the impact of sanctions would be? And he understood that risk and did this anyway. It does look as if precisely ever since he started his escalation back in spring of last year, that this was the plan. Now, again, we don't really know. And it's going to be one thing for when the historians get to unpick the archives to really find out if there was serious debate within the system, if there were particular junctions at which maybe Putin was contemplating a more minimalist approach or a more drawn out approach or whatever. But I think it's worth saying that, look, economic sanctions... They have their place in deterrence, but it's clear that they are not in any way some kind of magic bullet. And they very, very rarely have a quick effect. And given that Putin has spent eight years preparing his system precisely to resist foreign economic sanctions, I think that the idea that they alone was, were going to a, able to, be, to do the job was very unlikely. The problem is that in some ways in the West, we forget that there is something in between boots on the ground and economic sanctions. We could have perhaps looked at all sorts of you know, indirect ways of saying, well, actually, these will be the costs if you move into Ukraine. But even so, I mean, honestly, watching his speeches, first when he announced on Monday that he was recognising the pseudo-states and then last night's on the actual invasion, the sheer bile about with which he talked about NATO, but especially Ukraine, suggests that this is something deeply personal. And I'm not convinced at this stage that he would have been able to be deterred by any reasonable means on our part. So two final questions before viewers can get on to the second part of our interview. So what is the significance of this invasion in terms of the last 100 years, say, for example, in European history or since World War II at least? And second of all, 
What can we expect to be the outcome on us in the West and in Britain, for example, of this invasion on inflation and other things? Well, let me actually flip those around and actually answer the second one first, because there's a natural flow. I mean, for us, it may seem that this is a conflict that is taking place on our television screens. It clearly will have effects on us. First of all, the direct ones in terms of food prices, because Ukraine is an agricultural source country. And clearly oil and gas prices are likely to also go up with constriction, especially if there's any damage to the pipelines that are going through Ukraine. Beyond that, we can expect volatility in the, in the stock markets and quite possibly, as we impose more sanctions, cyber attacks on our financial infrastructure. It's That's kind of Russia's way of trying to, to equalise the scale. So there are immediate and direct effects, but more generally, this poses really quite an existential challenge, I would suggest, for the Western security system. You know, what do we do? How do we, we step up? Can the European Union actually articulate any clear strategy beyond the economic measures that we've already seen to actually guarantee security? And how can that connect with NATO and the wider sort of Western community of nations? If we don't, it may well be that Putin will fail to conquer Ukraine anyway, regardless of, of whether we're successful or unsuccessful. But in some ways, if we don't, though, it really will have brought into question the whole nature of a Western security architecture, which, which leaves us all vulnerable because that brings into question the NATO guarantee as well. So in terms of where this fits in terms of the sort of the wider dynamic since, say, 1945, I would suggest that it represents the, the true end of an era. Cold War, you know, did it end in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union? Kind of didn't, it kind of didn't. We clearly, no, we no longer felt under any kind of uh, serious existential threat coming from, from the East. But nonetheless, the basic antagonistic dynamic was, was still there. And, you know, so long as there was a, still a Cold War in Putin's mind, well, it only takes one to start a war, whether cold or hot. And so in some ways, I, I think really we, we never properly resolved that. The Cold War just almost went into hiatus because in some ways it was it was a war that we sort of won. The Soviet Union clearly disappeared. But nonetheless, it was not like the end of World War Two. It's not like the, the, the victors got to impose a, a, a solution on the vanquished. Instead, we sat back, we encouraged a kind of rather stunted semi-democratic system within Russia in the 1990s. We really applied a policy of neglect. And in some ways, if we're honest, actually contributed to the rise of someone like Vladimir Putin. But I think this is now going to be the, the convincing end. If Russia actually manages to conquer Ukraine, then we will now have a proper Cold War. If Russia fails, then we'll still be pretty much in kind of a Cold Warish dynamic, but it'll be a very different one. And probably I suspect that this is actually going to bring down in due course the Putin regime. And that gives us a second chance, a second chance, because in a way, the one big lesson of 1945 is that actually you can make the best friends and allies from countries you have defeated. If you're willing to put in the effort, that doesn't just mean money. That actually means sustained political will. We failed to do that in 1991. We may have another chance to do that. Why is Putin invading Ukraine? Well, I mean, let's be honest, he invaded Ukraine back in 2014. So this is just simply a, an escalation of a process that's already happening. I mean, it's all kinds of reasons. And uh, there's the, the, the strategic and there's the entirely personal. From a strategic point of view, 
you know, he's clearly committed to, as he would think of it, making Russia great again, bringing it back to its status as a true great power. And in terms of thinking, Putin's very much, in my opinion, like a 19th century geopolitician. For his idea, you know, great power, that doesn't mean a dynamic economy with lots of soft power and whatever. No, I mean, a great power has strong military forces. It has a sphere of influence in its neighbourhood. You know, it has that kind of sense of other countries that are dependent upon it. And clearly Ukraine is meant to be one such. So there's a key strategic thing. Russia without Ukraine is, is a Russia that is much less powerful. But then there's also, I think, a personal element. I mean, this is a man who, as I say, is, is very much framed in, in old-fashioned terms. It's not just his 19th century geopolitical ideas, but he's also a product of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of empire. And I think from his point of view, he very much seems to have invested a lot of himself, self-image, in this notion of building up his historic legacy as kind of something, this might be a little bit overdramatic, but the man who saved Russia. And I think the thought of being put in the history books as the man who lost Ukraine, I don't think that's something that he's willing to countenance. And therefore, there is there is both geopolitics and there are just simple personal self-regard. And given that you know, this is a man who will be 70 in October, he probably feels he has relatively few remaining opportunities to really make his mark. So when we look at strategic interests in terms of invading Ukraine, Perhaps we should put that to one side because this is more about personal status for President Putin than anything else. Should we be looking towards this idea of status and of Russian power more than about strategic interests? Well, obviously, the two interconnect. But I think I certainly would think so, because in some ways we anyway tend to think a lot about modern geopolitics and national power. That's the kind of stuff we understand. And yet we keep getting caught out by what Putin does. And in part, that's because Putin likes to surprise us and keeps his cards close to his chest often. But it is also precisely because of this human dimension of things that we assume, and I'm as guilty as others of doing this sometimes, that what is common sense for us is going to be common sense for him. And, you know, he looks at the world in a very different way. He's also, I think, increasingly surrounded by yes men and people who don't dare criticise him. And so he has this kind of rather bizarre sense of what's going on. I mean, I watched uh, yesterday he gave there wasn't just a meeting of the Security Council, at which the various grandees of the system were forced to basically acquiesce with his policy. But he made a televised address explaining why he was recognising the pseudo states and so forth. And it was a truly bizarre, self-indulgent ramble, much of which was a scarcely really fully understood pastiche of history to try and justify his point of view, a lengthy detour into 1920s Bolshevik nationality policy, discussion about the flaws of Ukrainian privatisation. I mean, There can be no real sense that this is the sort of thing that ordinary Russians were interested in hearing or cared about. It was purely that basically this was a speech that he was giving to an audience of one person, himself. And again, I think in this kind of incredibly personalised systems, this is what happens. An otherwise ruthless but pragmatic and sensible individual can become seduced by all kinds of bizarre ideas because there's no one really there to tell him that's not a good idea, sir. I want to delve into all those issues into more detail later on, the sort of history of Russia, the history of Ukraine, what Vladimir Putin is talking about there. But first of all, I want to ask more generally, are we into a new Cold War with Russia? 
I think we are. There are differences between this and the old Cold War in the sense of, I mean, I think that the prospects of, of nuclear Armageddon are that much less. Russia is vastly less powerful than the Soviet Union was. And perhaps most importantly of all, there isn't really an ideological dimension. Putin is a nationalist, a pragmatic patriot in that respect. He wants to project his power abroad, but he doesn't have a model that he wants to project. You know, he doesn't want us to become Russian Orthodox or adopt the Russian style of, of parliamentary government or whatever else. No, I mean, this is just simply about national interest. So it is a Cold War. But again, it's going back to it's much more like a 19th century Cold War of you know aggressive national powers. But I think we have to accept that, yes, what we have, the current situation will probably obtain. Who knows quite how the Ukraine crisis will be either contained or spin out. But regardless, essentially, so long as Putin is in the Kremlin, what we see is basically what we're going to continue to get. And in terms of comparisons between the last Cold War and the current one, obviously the Soviet Union has collapsed in 1991. But when you look to the West as well, there have been huge changes. There is some people who argue the West as a liberal democratic force no longer exists. We're far more fractured. We don't believe in intervention in the same way that we used to following Iraq and Afghanistan. And the West basically is a dead concept. Do you agree with that? That's a very, uh, I would say, bold claim. I think there is still a concept of what the West means. But the point is, it is a contested context. I think that's the thing. It's not dead. It's just that it's not commonly agreed. And I mean, first of all, just to push back, we shouldn't over mythologize what the Cold War was like. On one level, it was a contest between free democracies and the nasty Soviet Union and its sort of, at times, totalitarian and at times authoritarian regime. But on the other hand, I mean, it was also a time of deep cynicism and pragmatism on both sides. We were perfectly comfortable in the West to support all kinds of unpleasant regimes in the name of fighting our fight. And we think of the Cold War as a period of peace, but that's because it was a peace in the Northern Hemisphere largely because we outsourced all our fighting into the Southern Hemisphere. The Cold War was much, much less cold if you were in Afghanistan or Vietnam or Angola or Nicaragua or whatever. So there is a danger of slightly romanticising an old sense of order. But the key thing was precisely that genuinely, I think the West did feel under existential threat. And that did force a degree of unity upon the West. Now, look, Putin's Russia can be distinctly problematic from the West's point of view, certainly from the countries which are in NATO. But no one really believes that it actually poses an existential threat. No one thinks that Russia is either going to launch its nuclear weapons one day or that it can send its forces rolling westwards. You know, Russia absolutely is a challenge for Ukraine. And it is also something that causes us all kinds of different problems. But it's a very, very different order of magnitude. So that's the first thing I'd say. But going back to your, your point about the West more generally, I think we are going through a period of quite extraordinary change. And one of them is bringing into doubt, I would say, the legitimacy of so many of the, the, the fundamental principles of what we thought of how the West worked. So whether it's in terms of democratic systems that to a large extent were really products of the industrial age and, and assumptions about class and so forth that really don't apply. Or whether it's in terms of media controls, where nowadays when frankly anyone with a Twitter account or an Instagram channel has really the right to be considered a media outlet themselves. You know, the old gatekeepers who told us what to think and what to know, 
they're they're very much sort of a, a creature of the past and all power hierarchies i mean you know for example take the european union i mean the thing that always strikes me is i think especially for someone like putin i don't think he believes the european union really exists as a thing yeah he knows there's something there with a with a flag and and, and gold stars but when it comes down to it he doesn't really think it matters because it doesn't have a strong military security dimension whereas you talk to the european union and they like to describe themselves as a regulatory superpower that precisely their control is asserted not through tanks but through basically setting the terms of trading relationships and so forth well who's right and the honest answer is both of them and neither having regulatory power is let's be honest not much reassurance if you've got tanks crossing your border but conversely nor can we ignore that kind of power i think what's happening is precisely the concept of power becoming more and more diverse and therefore with it also the the central gravity of power so again the west this idea of the west as something which was obviously dominated by america and then you know europe there was jostles between the united kingdom and france and germany but essentially a common european concept now, a lot of this is really coming into question and therefore i think it's not so much that the west is disappearing as a notion but that we're now contesting and we may well find that actually the west will disappear as a concept because we will find new kind of communities already the united states is kind of desperate if it can to pivot towards asia and yet damn europe keeps pulling it back for some reason or another you know if we look to the future it may well be that, that there will be a future in which actually it is much more about the united states and asia and europe looking towards africa and and the middle east for example it's hard to know for sure but as i said i think this is ex- exciting but also like all exciting times confusing there's two questions on that first of all on the definition of power to us russia on all the economic measures is not a power it's got a, an economy roughly the size of italy's i'm sure you can explain to viewers just how economically weak russia is in many ways and also it's got a declining fertility it's got a demographics issue so in many ways by our sort of measures in the west it is not a significant country now there is this idea that during the cold war and you may think this was a myth but i think to part extent it was true as you say that ideologically we did believe in spreading this idea of freedom of liberal democracy and this was a widely held belief for a long time and just recently when america withdrew from afghanistan we basically decided or have figured out or whatever that this nation building concept that you could turn a country like afghanistan into a liberal western democracy that utterly failed so this concept of spreading democracy of spreading freedom of spreading the liberal system the western system to other countries has that not manifestly gone and that you know policymakers who still cling on to that idea are living in a false world i suppose that's what i mean by the end of the west okay well let me briefly deal with the issue of of russian power and then move on to this much sort of broader issue about nation building i mean this is an interesting thing i mean how is russia able to so monopolize uh, the world's attention at the moment when as you say it it seems to have a poor economy and such like well i mean first of all it's worth noting that actually economic comparisons often of a very poor ones i mean actually often it's really about purchasing power parity because the point is sure in the international markets a russian economy based on rubles doesn't look as if it's that strong but if you look at the russian military well clearly they're not 
buying foreign kit. They're not paying their soldiers in anything other than rubles. So although it looks in international parity terms as if actually the Russian defence budget isn't that much bigger than the British defence budget, on the other hand, clearly it buys one hell of a lot more. And really, we're talking about, in real terms, it's something like three to four times the size. And that helps explain why they can manage to maintain such a sizable military force. But it's also that I think what the Russians have understood, and I think this is a lesson that we're all having to come to terms with, except that the Russians, because of their situation, in some ways, I think, grasped it first, is precisely that, given that we now live in an interconnected world, we're all in the same information space, we're all in the same economic space. This interconnectivity that was meant to actually end wars and bring about a new era of peace and prosperity for all, and that had been lovely, actually the very interconnectivity has become a new battlefield. And in some ways that's part of what, what the Russians have learned. They, they have, like any good geopolitical guerrilla, they have moved the conflict from the areas in which they're weakest and we're strongest into the areas where they think that they're strongest and we are most vulnerable. And from their point of view, where is our weakness? The fact that we are precisely a constellation of democracies with all the consequent disagreements and arguments and rivalries within and between our countries. Whereas Russia, it's not, it's not purely an authoritarianism, but it is you know, to a large extent, and certainly when it comes to foreign policy, motivated by one will and therefore can act in, in, a, in a very sort of focused way. So the Russians try to maximise the various disruptive forces within the West through overt diplomacy, covert subversion, all kinds of different means, while at the same time feeling that they can actually focus their resources on what really matters to them. So I think this, this helps explain part of the, sort of the, the apparent disconnect in, in power. But to go on to this really interesting point about nation building and so forth, I mean, if we think about where are the most successful examples of nation building, and I would suggest that, I mean, one, one could come up with all kinds of different ones, but really we're talking about two specific sets of examples. One is Imperial Rome, and the other one is the post-World War II reconstruction of Europe and Japan. Now, Imperial Rome, it was because Rome was there for the long term. In the heyday of its, of its in, invasions and expansions, the notion was that Rome comes to a place and then Rome rebuilds it from the ground up. The local elites are incorporated, the roads are built, the cities are built, everything is built. I mean, there is a huge actual investment in real terms about what's going on. But mainly it's not just an investment in physical infrastructure. It's an investment in the people that you offer the locals the chance to, for example, serve in the legions in return for citizenship for them and more to the point for their kids. You offer the local elites the chance to basically be adopted into becoming elements of the imperial elite. And on the whole, yes, they're, they're local, so they're kept a bit of an arm's length. But there is the chance, the prospect of really being able to rise. I mean, I think this is it. It was such a wholehearted venture that even when the empire fell, nonetheless, it left all kinds of legacies behind it. But it was a massive and, as I said, a social investment. Whereas, you know, no one was saying to the Afghans, become Democrats. And in return, you can you can come and live, live with us or anything like that. Secondly, though, I mean, if one looks at the post-World War II reconstruction, I mean, in part, that was thanks to a massive amount of investment through the Marshall Plan. But it was also because it was investment that was being poured into countries which had just been destroyed or shattered by World War II. In some ways, they were actually trying to build it from the, the, the ground up. And precisely because it was in the context of the beginnings of the Cold War, 
it was being done because that had a clear national security imperative. Now, you'd think that that much the same could be said of Iraq or Afghanistan. But I think the problem was precisely that although they went into Iraq and Afghanistan because they regarded it as a security concern, after a certain point, no one really believed it. I mean, no one honestly believed that whether or not Afghanistan becomes a hellhole of competing warlords and the Taliban, or whether it actually becomes a functioning state, that it really mattered all that much to the United States. So I think after a certain point, you know, it actually became one of constant short termism, constant what's the least we can do. And no one really believed in the mission. I mean, the fact that successive administrations were so comfortable operating alongside deeply corrupt local figures because it was convenient and pragmatic and because often they knew how to present themselves internationally. They were sort of plausible. They wore suits. And even though they were stealing hand over fist, they managed to convey the idea that things could get better. One of the key elements of martial aid wasn't just simply relying on donating huge chunks of money to locals and then receiving reports telling them that, yeah, everything's fine, all the money's being spent as it should. In fact, it involved a very high degree of interventionism, that in fact you had Americans or American employees down at the level of factories and so forth, making sure that the money was being dispersed properly, putting their own credibility, their own careers, in some cases, you know, the prospect of uh, criminal punishments behind them actually making sure that it was being done honestly. Again, a level of penetration and, frankly, violation of national sovereignty, which would be very, very hard to kind of conceive of these days. But because Europe was prostrate and Japan had been defeated, in both cases, they didn't get a say. And so they were basically created, drawn up by the Americans. So, I mean, I think it can be done. But you've really got to commit to a level of enthusiasm, a level of spending, and also a level of incorporation of these people into your own communities, your own broader, I don't just simply mean communities in terms of living with you, but you know, your own ethical communities that we haven't yet seen and I can't really see in the future. So I'm kind of agreeing with you. I'm saying it's still, I think, a conceivable possibility. But on the other hand, I agree with you entirely that, frankly, I see no evidence of the will to do it in the future. And this is the interesting point. It's on that willpower that's changed, really, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the ideological shift in the West and specifically in the United States that's happened over the last 10, 20 years is absolutely fascinating. So if you look at the outcome of the Afghanistan withdrawal last year. This has shifted opinion, I think, in a huge way in the United States. Even Democrats now are becoming more isolationist than they ever have been in a long while, well, than they have been in a long time at least. And Republicans, and particularly Donald Trump-type Republicans, they have really become much more isolationist than the Bushite Republicans of the Iraq war, for example. I think there's been a significant shift in the United States towards that isolationist. And I'm not saying that with any spin, by the way. I'm not having, not having any view on that. But that simply is what has happened, in my view anyway. And this links in with my next question. So if I was on Fox News right now, many of the commentators would be asking, why should we care about the people of Ukraine? Why should we care about Ukraine? Why does Ukraine matter to us? So can you answer that question? 
Absolutely. I mean, first of all, on a totally basic level, Ukraine is a major producer of agricultural goods and also, especially now that Nord Stream 2 has been cancelled, a primary pipeline for gas heading in, into Europe. War in Ukraine, I mean, particularly if, if it's a sort of serious apocalyptic conflict that the West has been warning about, you know, will mean higher food prices, higher energy prices at a time when we're already experiencing uh, inflation in both. It's also going to mean refugees, refugees heading westwards. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly even some are saying maybe a little alarmistly, millions. And they're, they're going to sort of find somewhere to go. I mean, unfortunately, sort of this is the nature of humanity. You can't ultimately sort of keep them out when, when there's a war on your, in your neighbourhood. So there's kind of some practical reasons. In wider political terms, I mean, what is at stake is in many ways a, a concept of the world order that has already been shaken, warped, spindled and mutilated a bit, but hasn't yet broken, which is this post-Westphalian order in which we say that actually countries have sovereignty, that it is not some kind of sort of mad Maxian universe in which might always makes right, that there is such a thing as international law, that there are such a things as the, as the rights of nations to self-determination and existence. And we may lose some struggles to uphold those rights, but nonetheless, it, you know, if we just simply abandon them, then they will continue to be challenged. And we might think, well, Ukraine doesn't matter to me. But who knows where else it, it, it's going to be? I mean, for example, I mean, the, the, the obvious parallel that people are drawing about is well, what, what happens to Taiwan. Now, you might think, well, why does Taiwan matter to me? But the answer is actually you know, a massive disruption of the Pacific Ring economies, which is what actually any broader war would mean, will actually have a huge impact, whether it's in terms of the trivial, you know, will you be able to get the new iPhone, or whether it's in terms of the much more fundamental, what is it going to do to your pension fund as, as economists tank? This is the thing, we have now become so interconnected in so many ways. In the old days, one could fight wars which would be fought by essentially working class people with a, with a few upper class officers somewhere else, safely at a distance. And our economies were, were, were disconnected, our information spaces were disconnected and so forth. Now it's not like that. Now, actually, every war in some way or other has ripple effects that affect us. And the bigger the war, then clearly that's a point when the ripple becomes a wave. I suppose the alternative view to that is that it's not worth putting British lives or American lives or Western lives on the line to fight for the people of Ukraine. It's their own fight against Russia. And Russia has, and there's other arguments that they would say as well. So they would say, for example, Russia has a right to express its view in eastern Ukraine, where people there may want to be part of Russia, for example. And I want to talk about Russia's claim on Ukraine in detail here, because this is where this all kind of comes down to. Do you think that Russia has any sort of legitimacy or any kind of claim over any regions of Ukraine? Well, first of all, just make that point of actually about you talk about British and other lives. I absolutely agree. And I'm certainly not for a moment saying that we should be sending British forces into Ukraine to 
stare down, but if necessary, fight the Russians. I think the nature of the modern world today is that there's all kind of things we can be doing that do not involve putting our own soldiers in harm's way and risking the kind of massive and dangerous escalation that that will be involved. So let me just sort of put that put that out there. But to go back to your point about Russia and Russians' rights, well, the irony is, yes, yes, of course, Russia does have certain rights. There are Russian citizens in Ukraine, but particularly in southeastern Ukraine. Now, a lot of those are people in the Donbass that the Russians rather indiscriminately handed out passports after they had intervened as a way of justifying their intervention. But even without that, look, I mean, the thing is this. There is a truth in the fact that Ukraine and Russia have been interconnected culturally, politically and indeed physically for so long, predating the Soviet era. Ukraine's borders have migrated over the years. And I mean, part of Putin's whole narrative is exactly that modern Ukraine is basically a product of the Soviet Union and, and, and Lenin's nationalities policies. So, I mean, yes, it's not cut and dried. But what we have to distinguish between is the right to say we will stand up for our citizens and those people who look to Russia and maybe are Russian speakers and so forth. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In another country, as and when we feel they're being oppressed. But we will do so within the norms of the international system. And as happened here, to use it as an excuse. Because let's be perfectly honest, until 2014... Moscow did not care about the Donbass. Moscow did not care about the Russians of Ukraine in any meaningful way. Crimea was a little bit different because Crimea was a piece of Ukraine that until the 1950s had been actually been part of Russia and had a lot of Russians who were still living there as well as the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So I think you know, Crimea, we have to understand, was a, a special case. But the Donbass, no one cared about the Donbass. That's been Donbass's tragedy. Neither Kiev nor Moscow really care about it. To Moscow, it was purely an instrument to put leverage on Kiev. They suddenly discovered the Russians of Donbass then. So, yes, of course, Moscow does have a moral and legal right to have some kind of say, some kind of stake. But, A, it's got to be within the law. B, it's got to be clearly not just simply... Uh, pretty transparent gambit to justify an adventurous move to try and punish Kiev for the temerity of trying to move out of Russia's sphere of influence. I'm going to test your history knowledge here and I'm going to ask if you can give a sort of overview to our viewers of the history of Russia's relationship with Ukraine 
and you've sort of given it there in a very basic way. But can you sort of fact check or debunk any claims that Putin made and perhaps where he got it right in terms of Russia's history of Ukraine when you're going back to the Vikings and the, the Rus people? Because they have been historically linked in many ways. Right. Well, of course, this is naturally then now going to become a three-hour uh, <laughs> podcast. But no, I will try and try and sort of keep it, keep it more, more limited than that. I think look, what we have to understand is that back in the, the era when there was not a Russia, there was just simply the, the, the peoples of the Rus. So we're, you know, we're really talking 8th century, 7th, 8th century long onwards. You know, these, these were not a separate you know, two separate countries. These were part of a single cultural community, which in many ways was the sort of product of local Slav tribes that in due course intermarried with the so-called Variagi, the Varangians, who were basically Viking conquerors, who came and to basically sort of really founded what we might think of as, as, as the modern lands of the Rus. Cities such as Kiev, Novgorod, Moscow was frankly at that point even just a tiny little rural village. Um, you know, but anyway, the, the foundational cities of, of the Rus were these Varangian cities. And Kiev was also the, the home of the Russian Orthodox faith. I mean, this is the irony that uh, Saint Vladimir the Great, Prince Vladimir, who is regarded as the sort of the patron saint of Russia. And if you go just outside the Kremlin, Putin has had established this massive statue of Vladimir holding forth a cross. Um, well, one can actually make the case that he's really Saint Vladimir because he was actually the, the prince of Kiev when he made the decision to convert and force his people to convert to, to Orthodox Christianity. And so eventually, although Moscow would, would rise, particularly after the Mongol invasion, which basically left Kiev battered and burnt, and the princes of, of Moscow proved very, very assiduous at essentially being the uh, Mongols' number one quislings in their ter territorial unit. But nonetheless, you know, the, the thing was that these were all part of a single cultural unit. Princes would, would transfer from one city to the next, almost like modern chief executive officers, you know, hired and recruited and moved. So for a long time, this was just simply one, one unit. It's really in the post-Mongol era, and particularly as we start getting into the, sort of the, the, the early modern period, the rise of actually what we would think of as, well, first Muscovy and then Russia the, at the time of the Tsars. Um, that's when the whole history of Ukraine becomes more complex. Because precisely you have, first of all, the fact that, you know, if we look at what is Ukraine today, Part of it was, was under the control of the Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, and that's why, you know, particularly when one looks at Western Ukraine, there is a high level of Catholicism. And, and other parts at different points will, will be controlled by sort of various sort of Cossack hordes and such like. And really, the incorporation of what we would think of as, as Ukraine today was, as I said, in part because it was really parts of the, the patrimony of the Tsars of Moscow, and in part, this is, these are territories that were actually conquered over time. But there was still this notion of Ukraine. I mean, although the word Ukraine, and I'll try not to make this too much of a lecture, but although the word Ukraine, actually its root is in the Russian word for frontier. You know, so it, to an extent from, from the Russians' point of view, it was seen as the marches. But actually, it also had an incredibly vibrant and dynamic culture of its own. It was absolutely not a periphery. And then there are, there, there are periods in which actually U Ukraine is separate from Russia and periods when it was actually under its control. When the Bolsheviks had their revolution, at that same time, you actually had a massive war of independence. And in effect, the Ukrainians were, were conquered again by a Russian government in the Russian Civil War. And 
precisely because the Ukrainians were seen as being too independent-minded, too uppity. Well, in the Stalin era, we had a forced famine in the period of collectivization, the so-called Holodomor, which was really intended to absolutely break the will of the Ukrainian peasantry. So, I mean, I have jumped over the, the middle period at high speed, but unfortunately it's either that or one goes through very, very sort of detailed shifts. But the key thing is that it's, it is true that there is a, you know, a strong commonality. Many Ukrainians speak Russian as their first language or as a, an almost interchangeable second. Many Ukrainians are Russian Orthodox, even though within a separate element of the church. And many Ukrainians have family in the rest of Russia. But nonetheless, the notion that there is something called Ukraine has a very, very long pedigree. And I remember just last point I'd make is I was in spring 1991. So very, not just last years, but the last months of the Soviet Union. And I was actually in, as was then called then still, Kiev. And talking to Ukrainian nationalists at the time. And the thing that really struck me was precisely that part of it was was very backward looking, sort of loamy historical sense of at last this is our chance to to once again regain our civilizational roots. But also talking to a lot of, of young Ukrainians, even at that time, who saw that this was their finally their chance to do something they've been trying to do year after year, century after century, which is actually to come out from under Moscow's shadow. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly complex relationship. But final point I would make is in many ways, just as Sir Vladimir is the patron saint of Russia, I can't help feel that Ukrainians ought to be putting up statues of Vladimir Putin in all their main squares, because in some ways he is the founder of modern Ukraine. Time and time again, the Ukrainians fail to quite kind of actually manage to coalesce and create a proper sense of a common identity and thus a state to build around it. And it took Putin's aggression over years and years to really forge that common identity. And you now notice it's much, much more united. The old divisions between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, between Eastern and Western Ukrainians matter so much less these days, thanks to Vladimir Putin. Thank you for that very concise and articulate history lesson. That's brilliant. And, and I'm glad you mentioned 1991. And I want to go back to 1991 because this is a real key date in my mind as to why this is all going on now. But back in 1991, the West had this historic opportunity after the Soviet Union fell to repair relations with Russia and also to help Russia and its former satellite states to build up into Western proper democracies. Now, this completely failed and we can see the results of that today. Who do we blame for that failure? Is it the West who failed to properly engage with Russia and who created a sort of free-for-all capitalism where people were going in and buying assets dirt cheap and creating this sort of kleptocracy? Or is it Russia for failing to engage with the West? Who do we blame? Honestly, I can't help but say I, should, I, I would want to blame the West without in any way excusing the things that, that, that Putin does and so forth. But that was exactly, that was the point when we had all the power and all the opportunity. It's not just that the Soviet Union had collapsed and that there was massive levels of impoverishment and so forth. It was also that we had huge social and moral capital. I mean, that was, you know, the 1990s was the decade when everyone wanted to be like the West. I remember, it's a really trivial example, but when Pizza Hut first opened in Moscow, you know, the queue just went for eight miles, it seemed. You know, people were willing to spend hours queuing 
for what was meant to be fast food. And, you know, for, for a slice of pizza, paying something like, you know, a week's salary or whatever, because it was literally the taste of the West. There was this huge opportunity and we absolutely, we failed to take advantage of it. Quite the opposite. What we did was we more or less thought, thank God that's all over. We don't really have to think about the, you know, Russia and the other post-Soviet states anymore. Baltic states were an exception because we regarded them really as kind of a part of Europe that had been sundered unfairly annexed at the end of World War II. But generally speaking, you know, our, our focus was on firstly the peace dividend. You know, we wanted to stop spending money, so we wanted to you know, run down our military. We weren't about to be running down our military to spend it on westernization programs of, of, of note in, in Russia, etc. And obviously we were going to focus on the Central European countries of the former Warsaw Pact, because again, they were countries that we regarded as actually part of Europe that had been locked away. And we didn't really think of the fact that actually Russia considers itself a European country, I think with absolutely good reason. And so there were so many serious policy missteps in the 1990s. But in particular, again, we didn't live up to our own standards and values. You know, we said we wanted to see democracy in Russia. And so we did, except when it was inconvenient. In 1993, Russian President Boris Yeltsin got into a serious constitutional disagreement with his parliament, the Supreme Soviet. Now, fair enough, the parliament he had, he had actually inherited from Soviet times, and it was full of deeply unpleasant communists and nationalists. But still, the, the means of resolution that, that he actually turned to was that he brought in the army. He had the parliament building, the so-called White House, confusingly enough, shelled into submission. And because actually at that point he had broken the constitution and technically was no longer president, well, what did he do? He just simply then held a referendum allowing him retrospectively to say it was all right. This is the kind of thing if Putin did, we would rightly be up in arms. But because we didn't like the communists, we didn't like the nationalists, we thought Yeltsin was on our side and we didn't really want to get too involved. We were fine with it. 1996, Yeltsin looked as if he was going to lose an election to the communists precisely because people were, were so unhappy. What happened? He made a deal with a sort of a collection of bankers and media moguls and so forth and stole the election. Massive levels of rigging as well as just outright you know, slanders about the communists and so forth. But again, we didn't want the communists to win, so we were fine with it. So, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised if people like Putin think that we are sanctimonious hypocrites, that we talk a good talk about our values but we don't actually believe any of them. And then in terms of the economy, I mean, likewise, we, we didn't just simply sit back. We often encouraged policies which totally led to the, the plundering of the economy. I mean, I mean travelling to, to Russia in the 1990s was such a deeply dispiriting and disturbing experience often. I mean, I was insulated from the trouble because I was a Westerner and so forth. But, you know, you, you would look and on the one hand, you saw a minute fraction of the country becoming vastly rich. Mercedes-Benz sold more armoured limousines in Russia in the 1990s than in the rest of the world put together. But at the other time, for most Russians, it was a time of phenomenal immiseration. You would see outside the metro stations lines of people, pensioners in particular, because their pensions had been fixed and as the ruble depreciated, they became worth nothing, selling anything they had. Sometimes it was like, you know, World War II medals. Sometimes it was even more pathetic. I remember once seeing a half-used tube of toothpaste being sold, but just they desperately needed some money. 
The privatisation campaigns absolutely ended up thoroughly compromised and corrupted. And it just meant that whole industries got privatised into various kind of capitalists and cronies back pockets, many of whom were actually ex-communists, precisely because they had the, the cash and they had the connections to be able to make it. So they suddenly reinvented themselves as capitalists. And we welcomed that. Yeah, we had some concerns about the, sort of how it was done. But essentially, we thought, no, that's great. Privatisation is a good thing because the market will work itself out. Now, this is not an anti-market diatribe on market. But the point is, what happened is the market got totally distorted. Because what happened is that exactly the people who had the cash and the connections and sometimes the muscle simply got their pick. You know, we had privatisation auctions where literally sort of goons would keep everyone but one particular bidder out of the room. We had all kinds of sort of scenes like, like that. And again, then, should we be surprised that actually Russian capitalism turned out to be essentially about corrupt manipulations of the markets by a relative handful of, of oligarchs and minigarchs, all with their political protection, rather than genuine market economics? So, look, again, I mean, I think that without in any way exonerating Putin himself, but in some ways, by... Being so hypocritical by not helping Russia find the kind of future it wanted for itself and by often actually treating Russia as pretty much irrelevant. It was a problem rather than a player. We basically laid the groundwork for the rise of someone like Putin because there are enough Russian people who said, no, enough's enough. We need to get our act together. We need to be strong because otherwise we're just getting ourselves walked over by these Westerners who talk about democracy, but actually they're just like modern colonialists. Wow, I have really channeled my inner bio there. <laughs> you, you, listen, you've analysed the political nature of, of the 1990s in, in, the Soviet, in, in Russia, I should say, and the economic problems. But let's also talk about the military issues as well. And this is the final point I want to make that, you know, in this interview that we haven't really mentioned, is NATO. So after the Soviet Union, to all intents and purposes, it seems like the point of NATO has surely expired. And this is a point that Peter Hitchens, for example, makes in the UK. He says, what is the point of NATO? Why does it exist? He says that no one can answer this question. And this obviously links in with the Russian argument and the argument that Putin makes that NATO is expanding onto its borders and that uh, one of the reasons he's so upset is that Ukraine may join NATO and the European Union. So can you explain in the 1990s, after the Soviet Union collapsed, what and today, what is the point of NATO? Honestly, in the 1990s, there was no real point to NATO. I mean, now NATO really has re-emerged as, although no one will admit it, an anti-Russian alliance. I mean, that is absolutely what, what NATO is, but they just can't say so. But in the 1990s, no, it was actually much, much more sort of open to, to question. I mean, there were some people who, you know, other countries within the former Warsaw Pact and in the former Soviet Union, who absolutely were still fearful of, of Russia. They thought that one day Russia would, would be back, as in some ways it is. And they wanted, therefore, to join the club that would guarantee them security. And look, I can't blame them. You know, if I was an Estonian or a Czech uh, or indeed a Ukrainian, at that time, I'd be thinking there's no harm in a bit of insurance. Plus also, like all clubs, it had a certain degree of prestige. It, it had the cachet of, we're, we're now in the Western club, you know. So there was that sense of, again, you know, part of joining a community that you felt was the winning community. And obviously you, you want to be the insiders, not, not the outsiders. 
But at the same time, I mean, I think that, you know, having been involved in, in that decade in a whole variety of official and unofficial discourses about NATO and indeed with and in NATO, it was a lot harder to understand. It was more, I felt, that firstly, there was an element of institutional inertia. Once you've got a body, and there's a lot of people who have jobs and everything else, no one really wants to give up on that. You think, well, it might, it might come in handy somewhere down the line. There was an attempt to kind of reinvent it as a broader security alliance, which we saw in due course kind of invoked when it came to you know, 9-11 and Afghanistan and such like. Not quite sure that that worked out so well. What happened was, in effect, that at the same time, we had this sort of civilizational divide. We felt NATO was about democracies. Never mind the fact that Turkey is a member. We don't talk about that because, after all, Turkey is the largest provider of land troops in Europe. So it might be worth overlooking the, the, the fact it also you know, occupied half of Cyprus and so forth. Russia did make some moves at the time to actually talk about potentially joining NATO. And Russia did also ask the question, well, can you explain to us what NATO is for? And in neither case did they get a reasonable answer. And look, I don't think that that in and of itself in any way sort of determined that Russia was inevitably going to return to a more nationalist type of of policy. However, I think it would be foolish to pretend that it wasn't a factor. I mean, again, I remember at the time talking to to Russians within both the political and also the, the military and security elite who did feel that the continued presence of NATO somehow locked them out. I think this is one of the really pervasive feelings, you know, very much of Putin's generation, really. You know, the, the last gasp homo sovieticus generation. You know, these are the people who didn't just have their sort of education under Soviet times, but also they, their early career experiences. They were members of an, of an elite within a very, very stratified system. I mean, the Soviet Union was, was not in the slightest bit socialist in that respect. And, you know, life looks as if it's going to be great for them, if not for the rest of the Soviet population. And then suddenly everything comes down and they lose their empire. And look, we know, we know that loss of empire is something that takes countries a while to truly recover from. Britain and France, have they quite got out of it? I don't know. America's just going into that, I would suggest. But anyway, so obviously it, it was traumatic. And they felt at the same time, it wasn't just simply that they'd lost something. It's that they also felt that they were being kept out. They were somehow unfairly penalised because of what the Soviet Union was. And as if the Soviet Union was just purely a Russian empire. Which was a bit, but that, it was much more complex than that. And... Therefore, this sense of being kept out metastasized. It turned into a sense that somehow we're being hard done by, somehow we're being scapegoated. And not just what have we lost, but who took it from us? Who exploited us when we were weak and such like? So, yeah, I mean, I think we missed another historic opportunity by essentially treating the Russians as if their concerns were not totally irrelevant, but ultimately not determining. I mean... Gorbachev had been told that NATO would not expand eastwards. His mistake was never to get that in writing. And that's something that we've often said. Well, for the Russians, I mean, you you often find this in, in business, for example. They view a handshake as being a contract. You know, so from their point of view, they were told something. And we now say, why you didn't get it in writing? So they think, well, from the beginning, we were being lied to. Likewise, Yeltsin was actually quite hostile to NATO enlargement. But ultimately, he was put in a position where he couldn't stop it. So he he was 
convinced to make some kind of a deal. There was a, you know, a NATO-Russia council and such like to try and sweeten the pill. But it was still something that was absolutely imposed on Yeltsin. And so you know, now we find ourselves in many ways, thank God, NATO still is there in terms of protecting the other countries. I mean, you know, I do think that the Russians regard NATO member countries as basically bulletproof when it comes to kind of direct kinetic threats. But on the other hand, it's absolutely the case that the presence of NATO and the fact that it was maintained without really having a clear strategic rationale through the 1990s and even, frankly, into the early noughts. Remember, you know, Putin was at first perfectly willing to cooperate and you know, he was the first foreign leader to get in touch with the Americans after 9-11 and offer his support. But the fact that NATO was kept stokes this kind of conspiratorial sense that, yeah, now we know why they kept NATO, because they were always going to keep us out. They were always expecting to be at some kind of a conflict with us. And here we are now. Right. I want to spend the next 10 minutes or the last 10 minutes of the interview analysing contemporary responses from different countries around the world to this current crisis. So let's start with the United States. There's two men I want to talk about. The first is President Trump and the second is President Biden. Do you think, first of all, that Vladimir Putin would be doing what he's doing if Trump was president today? And second of all, do you think that Putin views Biden as essentially a weak leader and he's able to get away with basically what he wants to do because of this? I'll I'll sort of flip it around in some ways. I'll first answer about uh, Biden Biden and and Trump because I think it's not that they might think that Biden is, is weak. But above all, they think that Biden is rational. And I think this is probably why, actually, if Trump had been in office, they probably wouldn't have tried this. Because I always found this interesting. There was this kind of grand mythology about the extent to which, you know, somehow Trump is an agent of Putin. And yet you'd speak to Russians within their security apparatus or within their foreign ministry, and they had a very, very different perspective. Their key concern with Trump was that they they knew that he was entirely self-interested. He would throw anyone and anything under the bus, if need be. And also, he was deeply unpredictable. But I remember, again, being in Moscow at the time when Trump launched cruise missile strikes on Syria following a chemical weapons attack. And, you know, that literally was something that happened because one evening, you know, that evening he had seen TV coverage of children. I mean, obviously very moving TV coverage of children who've been affected by it and then decided to launch it. And I remember a, a Russian diplomat saying, you know, this is our worst nightmare given just how incredibly powerful America is. An American president who has a relatively low bar for the use of force, who makes policy literally overnight, and who doesn't signal that to his allies, let alone his antagonists. I mean, that that they found scary. And and, and they they had always had a a problem with Trump, precisely because they, they could not game out what he would do. And that's what they always like to do with the West. They like to think, well, what do we think are the anticipated responses and can we cope with that and so forth? Biden, I mean, they greeted Biden with relief because precisely he was a grown up. And on the one hand, they thought they could deal with him in the positive sense in the sense that they could make deals with him. And and there was hope that there would be some kind of agreements. But at the same time that they could deal with him in the sense that he will be limited and constrained in what he's going to do. And although I think actually the Americans have handled policy quite well in terms of their interesting sort of use of information, they definitely have been trying to get on the front foot. 
whereas it tends to be the Russians who have the initiative in terms of disinformation and creating pretext for actions. This whole campaign of saying, well, we think there's going to be false flag attacks, we think there's going to be this or that, you know, is an interesting new approach to trying to, in a way, pre-bunk what the Russians are doing. But nonetheless, at the same time, you know, Biden is not going to put American troops on the ground. Biden is not going to do any of the more kind of extreme and dramatic things that America could conceivably do. He is not just weak, but he is weakened by the fact that he is pragmatic and reasonable. And the Russians very much try to give that sense of we are not reasonable people. We are actually sufficiently unreasonable that you do not really want to challenge us. Right. Let's talk about the European response. Three questions on that. So there's three countries I want to focus on. France, has Macron been humiliated by his attempts at diplomacy in this Minsk agreement that seems completely blown out of the water? Germany, have they been complacent in allowing Russian gas to become reliant on that and by seemingly being weak and helping Ukraine, for example, supplying something like 5,000 helmets when other countries like the UK are being more proactive in sending military aid? And finally, on that latter country, the United Kingdom, have we been responding well to this crisis? Can you overall assess those three countries' response to this crisis? Absolutely. France, yes, I think Macron has been humiliated. I mean, this was the interesting thing. He clearly was desperately eager to use this as an opportunity in the post-Angela Merkel world to establish himself as the primary statesman of, of Europe. And he fell prey to that usual hubris of so many world leaders, but particularly, it turns out, French world leaders, who absolutely think that they and only they have some kind of magic insight which will allow them to, to deal with, with Russia. And I think the Russians absolutely played him and almost went out of their way to humiliate him, which, again, you know, one wonders if that's in part because they will be perfectly comfortable if he did not do well at the forthcoming elections. But also because, in a way, they used him as a, a channel, frankly, for, for disinformation. They definitely burnt some bridges there, but I think um, they made it clear that they're not particularly concerned about France. Germany is an interesting other matter. I mean, I think one, one has to have a certain sort of acceptance that actually it's not just simply weakness or anything like that that, that, that drives the German actions. It is a genuine philosophical view that actually violence, force and confrontation is not the best way to resolve problems. And it's best to talk it out. And it sounds very kind of hippie and kumbaya, maybe. But I think we, we have to accept that that is an honestly held view. Yes, Germany is to a considerable extent still dependent on Russian gas. Not the, the most dependent European country, but in some ways it's, it's because it's also really the, the dominant continental power. And I think that, yeah, the German rather excessively formal and legalistic approach to things like military aid did not do them or Ukraine any favours. You know, exactly handing over 5,000 sort of helmets when other people are sending sort of new, new missiles and such like did not do them, do them any good. What's interesting is, I mean, Olaf Scholz has already said that Nord Stream 2 is now suspended and it, it, it's not going to happen. We'll have to see now if in some ways that the struggle now moves into precisely the economic realm with sanctions, which you know, sanctions is what we call economic warfare when we want to not use the W word, whether or not Germany will step up properly there. It's not impossible. I think actually the Germans have a chance to surprise us by demonstrating that they are willing to bear a heavy load on the economic side of things precisely because they're not willing to bear a heavy load in the military side of things. 
And going to the UK, it is an interesting example of, I mean, I suppose it would be presented as, as global Britain, the degree to which Britain moved very, very quickly to assert itself a strong role. And although it's clearly working very closely with the Americans, particularly in terms of this sort of information campaign, it's not just simply acting as an American water carrier and, 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 and assistant. I mean, it clearly has its own unique approach and it clearly has identified one the fact that actually Ukraine is going to be a useful European ally in the future. I think a lot of this is, is not just about defending Ukrainian statehood and so forth, important though that is. It's also about establishing a long-term relationship. So, you know, that's important. But also this is an area in which the UK can demonstrate a certain degree of strategic leadership within Europe and show that, look, we are no longer in the European Union, but we always said that did not mean that we were going to turn our back on Europe. And particularly, you know, where we are heavy lifters anyway. When the European Union lost the British military, I mean, although obviously sort of military is not really part of the EU's competence, but really at that point, the European Union had to acknowledge that essentially the French were the only intervention forces that Europe has got. Some Italians. But with intelligence and with military assistance and so forth, actually, you know, Britain is very, very evident. It's forged this new trilateral agreement with Poland as well as Ukraine. I think this is an interesting way in which actually Britain is not only doing quite well in supporting Ukraine, but is also using that as a springboard for demonstrating you know, its wider strategic autonomy and strategic power. Now, on the final point about sanctions, let's be honest, I'm actually rather sceptical about sanctions, or certainly sanctions as the sort of be-all and the end-all of, of the Western response. Yes, the, the first tranche of individuals, three particular cronies of Putin's, frankly, if those three people still have assets in the UK, then they deserve everything they get because they should have known that they were going to be sanctioned. I'll be honest, in, in the case of one of them, I was surprised he wasn't already under sanctions, which is probably my, my mistake. And likewise, some banks hit. I mean, I think, though, what we must realise is that, you know, it, it, this is very much being framed as just the first wave. It's not quite as easy as just coming up with a list and saying, all of these people, their money is now frozen. There are all kinds of you know, constraints and legal elements to it. So, I mean, I'm expecting to see more. But when it comes down to it, what we have to realise is economic sanctions are not going to change in and of themselves. They're not going to change Putin's mind. He spent the last eight years making his economy as sanctions proof as possible. He's got China to lean on if necessary, even though the Chinese will impose quite a high price for that. And going after individual rich Russians, I mean, I've got no problem with that in principle. But again, Putin has been trying to get them to repatriate their money for years. And I think from his point of view, you know, if some rich Russian who ignored his advice slash instruction and finds a three million pound penthouse in London now being taken from them, I think Putin will think serves them right. So you mentioned the EU. And I want you to analyse the EU's response to this crisis. They've always wanted to have a sort of common foreign and security policy, but it seems to many that that has completely failed, at least in this case. And second of all, more generally, when you look at, you mentioned China there as well, when you look at the West's response to Russia and China, these emerging strategic uh, opponents or threats, as, you, as it were, do you think that we, over the next 10 years, we really need to be shifting economically away from these two countries, away from these rivals, whether it's energy, whether it's manufacturing with China and Taiwan? And can you link it with all of these coming threats, China, Iran? Should we be shifting away from these places? 
On the EU, I mean, every time there has been a security-related challenge, the EU has managed to fail it quite spectacularly, and we can see that their record continues unabated. I think this is the problem. The EU is not a security actor, and this is why the Russians don't really pay any attention to it in those terms. And I don't really see that changing for the foreseeable future. In terms of the wider issue, we see I have a very different image of what I think is going to happen with Russia than, than with China. I think with Russia, we have a Putin problem. With China, we have a China problem. It's, it's striking how little enthusiasm there is for confrontation with the West amongst most Russians. And even, frankly, within most of the, you know, even the, the older but not quite Putin generation Russian elite, the 55 to 65 year olds, I'm not saying they're friends of the West, but they haven't got that kind of truly visceral mistrust and even dislike of the West that one finds in Putin and that kind of handful of cronies around him. And therefore, I think that really with, with Russia, the issue is to contain the damage of Putin while we wait him out, because in due course, he will have a stroke, he will retire, he will die, something will happen to take him off the scene. And at that point, I'm actually unfashionably optimistic about the chances of dealing with it. It won't become a, immediately overnight a, a nice shining democracy. It will be a country ruled by pragmatic kleptocrats. But that's not a problem because we deal with pragmatic kleptocrats all the time. China, I think, is for me a much, much more serious and dangerous long-term challenge. So absolutely, I think our dependence upon the Chinese economy and Chinese investment is a very, very serious security risk. But there, in some ways, I would say that, yeah, we need to do what we need to do in order to sort of make sure that Putin can't hurt us. But I would not want us to totally abandon Russia. I want us to keep bridges there because in due course, Russia is going to be faced with a choice. I remember once, uh, this was some years back, speaking to a, a Russian uh, ex-senior military officer who said that his view was in 20 years time, Russia will have had to make a choice between being an ally of the West of some kind or a vassal of China of some kind. And I think from most Russians' point of view, they would rather be an ally of the West. So I think we, we don't want to totally destroy or try and destroy our relationship with a country which in due course could well be a useful strategic partner in precisely trying to constrain China. So yes, we, we need to be much more careful about economic dependencies, but I think I would definitely want to treat Russia and China as two very different beasts. Mark, look, thank you so much. I'm glad we ended on something near an optimistic note as well. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.